welcome to the podcast, An Intelligent Look at Terrorism. I'm your host, Phil Gursky, President and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting in Ottawa, Canada. If you think about the area between India and Pakistan at all, you might realize that there is a territory that we kind of call the Kashmir or the Kashmir Valley, which has been an area of great conflict forever, ever since the partition between India and Pakistan at the end of the British Empire in 1947. It seems to be a rather intractable conflict, one that just doesn't seem to want to go away. And it's been in the news lately. And one of the concerns I think a lot of people have is not only that it it results in death and destruction and tragedy for the people who are there, but it's being fought between two nuclear powers, Pakistan and India. And I think some people are very afraid that it might go to the nth degree and get a lot worse than it is. Any conflict, of course, results in people dying, people uh, losing relatives, people suffering. And I think a lot of times when we look at conflicts and we look at terrorism in particular, we often forget that some of the, the, the victims that suffer the most are women, women and children. We see, we see terrorism as a male-dominated phenomenon, but there are often just innocents on, on the sides that bear the brunt of it. So I thought that I would reach out to uh, somebody to, to weigh in on both of these issues, the Kashmir conflict, as well as women in conflict. And so I'm delighted to invite to the podcast today, uh, Farhana Kazi, who is an award-winning speaker and scholar on conflicts in the Middle East and the Muslim world. She has traveled throughout the Muslim world to understand local drivers of extremism. She is currently a guest lecturer at George Washington University in, in Washington. And more importantly, from my perspective, she used to work for the CIA around the time of 9-11. So Farhana, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. Good to be here. So let's start with the easy question first. Why is the conflict in Kashmir so intractable? You can solve that for us today in the podcast and save a lot of bother. Well, thank you for highlighting the Kashmir issue. I want to applaud you for bringing attention to this conflict that is often misunderstood uh, and misrepresented by the media and, and many of us who do not have access to vital information. I don't want to go into the history of partition and British colonialism. I do want to start with a significant day, August 5th, 2019. And I want to begin with this day because we're only a few days away before the first anniversary of August 5th, 2019. Yes, that's only a year ago. It's It's only a year ago. It's only a year ago. And I want to tell you what happened on that day, because what happened on that day has changed Kashmir forever. On that day, something so critical happened that the international community is now looking towards the Indian government, Prime Minister Modi, and you know we're calling on India to uh, to really answer for the oppression and the human rights violation, violations that have been committed. So let me tell you, on that day, Kashmir went dark. The Indian state banned phone and internet service. All the tourists that were there at the time were asked to leave. Indian you know, troops increased. So from a half a million troops, now you had 900,000 troops in the Kashmir Valley, which means every per every eight civilians, there is an Indian trooper. Um, and I want to just give you a little bit of context. Within the past 30 years, 100,000 people have lost their lives in this conflict. And I'm really speaking on the Indian side, because one thing that people don't realize, it in the Indian side, it's the world's most militarized zone. Um, and of course, as you rightly claim, you know, it is a nuclear flashpoint between India and Pakistan. It's the world's highest battlefield at 20,000 feet. And India and Pakistan have had at least three wars and, and various skirmishes. But what's happened 
happening today and the current context of the Kashmir conflict is what's happening on the Indian side. And so what India did on August 5th is strip the Kashmiris of their special status. It revoked Articles 370 and 35A, which was in the Indian Constitution. And this was, you know, part of Prime Minister Modi's plan. It was something that he had articulated during his election um, campaign and his support that he won from the far-right Hindu extremist group, the BJP, that's in power. So since 2014, and some would argue that prior to 2014, this um, BJP party and their anti-Muslim bigotry has really exacerbated even the conflict in Kashmir. So by stripping the Kashmiris of their special status and not having and being under complete lockdown with no with a, a very you know the most severe communications ban, I call it a dehabilitating silence because it has had mental, physical, social, and psychological lockdown. An Indian famed activist in human rights. Um, she's also an author, um, Arindati Roy, had said silence is the loudest sound. And she said that when India did that on August 5th, it had actually imprisoned um, 8 million Kashmiris inside their homes. And it was through pressure by United, you know, here, right here in Washington, D.C., where I am, pressure by some of our congressmen and women, um, pressure by, you know, other uh, Western countries, United Nations, that earlier this year, by March, India had lifted some of those restrictions, but still, now you have COVID-19. And so this is a twin lockdown. So now the Kashmiris are living in a situation where there is continued oppressive policies against them by the Indian state, even prior to August 5th. And, and now because of COVID-19, those stay-at-home orders. And so Again, when I look at just the contemporary history of what is happening, and if you're just really looking at current events, you have to bear in mind that what India did on August 5th by stripping Kashmiris of their special status means that you are now taking away their rights to the land. You're allowing non-Kashmiris to own land. You're allowing non-Kashmiris to take to also take the state jobs that were reserved for Kashmiris. Um, the protections that they had been given since 1947 no longer exist exist. A lot of what you describe, and by the way, thank you for highlighting that. I do recall when India did that last year, uh, at following it because I do follow sort of terrorism trends and, and counterterrorism trends. A lot of what you're talking about strikes me as very similar to Israeli policies in the West Bank in terms of the creation of settlements, the granting of land to Jewish settlers. Why do you think, Farhana, that this event went largely unnoticed in most of the world? Because it was unprecedented and it was completely shocking that uh, if even to local Kashmiris as this was about to happen. And I have family there and I consider Kashmiris my family. And so I'm in constant, when I when communications are up, I'm always on either through you know social media or on the phone talking to them. And they could see that something was about to happen. But even Kashmiris did not understand the, uh, you know, this monumental, um, they couldn't even predict what was about to, you know, change their lives forever. And so the question that you ask is one that, you know, Prime Minister of Pakistan, Imran Khan, was asking when he went to the United Nations nine months ago, calling on the international community to take action. And I think part of the reason is that India is considered the world's largest democracy. There are markets, there is a population in India. I mean, India has friendly relations with other countries, including Israel. And so it is it is that historic India that we think of. But that India, that, you know, it's secular 
India that was a, a country of hope uh, is now become a country of, um, I hate to say it, but Hindu supremacism and, and almost racism. And so it is the end of secularism. And this is a statement that was made by British PM Paul Bristol, who had a chance of being on the show with over the weekend. Um, you know, this whole idea that now you can resolve this conflict through bilateralism by involving India and Pakistan, that is dead now. It no longer exists because India will not come to the negotiating table. India, and I, when I say India, I really am talking about Prime Minister Modi, because prior to 2014, in the early 2000s, when the Pervez General Musharraf was head of Pakistan, and then you also had Mohammed Singh, who was of the Congress Party, there there was you know a moment where negotiations, um, you know, people were hopeful, and there was trade between the line of control, and uh, so there was a moment of celebration, and yet all of that fell apart as Pakistani politics also took a downturn, and it was the end of Musharraf, and then of course the BJP Party came into power. So when people ask, why is this happening? Why is this allowed to happen? Is you have to look at India's internal politics. You have to go back to the BJP party and look at this as a very militant organization that is not only against Muslims, but also Christians. It is, it is, it is not one that is going to negotiate its position now. You don't take any, any argument here, Farhana. I, I am not a fan of the Modi government. I am not a fan of the BJP, and I'm not a fan of the RSS, which basically tells yes. the BJP what to do. In fact, I wrote a whole book on Hindu extremism in my, in my most recent book, When Religion Kills. I'm going to be a, play a little bit of devil's advocate here, though. You, yes. you know, you're a Pakistani. You've got family in Kashmir. So clearly, you, you, you have a position, of, one would say a biased position. So what would your response be to those who say, well, yeah, India is definitely at fault. Like I say, Modi is, is no Democrat. He definitely is a Hindu extremist. He definitely... Uh, either uh, encourages it or turns a blind eye to what's happening. What would you say to people who say, well, Pakistan isn't helping either? Because Pakistan turns a blind eye when armed militants, i.e. jihadis, i.e. Islamist terrorists, go from Pakistan into Kashmir and carry out acts of terrorism in the, and have been in the territory for decades as well. Uh, well, thank you for asking me that question. And I'm not going to play devil's advocate because I try to... At least I hope I'm, I, you know, speaking as a neutral American observer. Uh, Pakistan is also to blame for its policies for the proxy war, especially in the early years of the Kashmir conflict during the uprising in the 1990s. I know so many people who had lost their lives because of the Indian Army's tactics, but also that conflict was exacerbated by the jihadi groups. And I've met many of those, you know, they call themselves ex-militants. I was in Pakistan doing my interviews for my book, my first edition of book, Secrets of the Kashmir Valley came out in 2016. And the new one is coming out on Monday. So I'm excited about that because I updated it. But I remember I was in Pakistan interviewing ex-militants and asking, I mean, these are members of Hezbollah Mujahideen um, and other groups I won't mention. And they were crossing, they had been supplied with arms um, and training to fight against the Indian army. So it's a classic kind of insurgency um, that has failed because the Kashmiri people do not want violence in their region. The Kashmiri people, by and large, are peaceful people. They have lived with Hindus and Christians and Sikhs, and there's a long tradition of peaceful coexistence in the valley. But now you have, uh, you know, you have terrorism in the valley. You have radicalization um, on both sides of the spectrum. So you have young boys becoming militants because of the recent Indian tactics, but you also have of the older generation, because the men that I were interviewing were in their 40s and 50s. So they have been part of the, what's 
you know, what they call a revolution for many years. And that was definitely supported by Pakistan. And what you see now is a, I would call it almost like a sea change in policy. And this comes back to leadership. Depending on who's in power, uh, the person in power will dictate their policies in Kashmir. So whether now you have, of course, Modi and the extremist policy in Pakistan, you have Imran Khan. You don't have a general. You have someone who actually wants to negotiate, someone who has um, cracked down on militant groups in his country, because for so many years, there wasn't, um, you know, it was no, it was not a secret and that the government and the army in particular had certain I wouldn't say relations, but certainly that they supported these groups. And then many of these groups became independent. And so even though on the one hand, Pakistan was fighting Al-Qaeda and was fighting, you know, ISIS elements, it also had these proxy groups. And and everyone in Pakistan, I think, understands the reason for that. And so whether it's right or wrong, um, you know, my uncle, by the way, used to be uh, he was at one point um, the prime minister of Pakistan and then became secretary of interior and so forth. And he used to tell me something that I used to find very funny when I was visiting him. He'd say, we have the good jihadi, the bad jihadi, and the DJE, the disgruntled <laughs> jihadi element. <laughs> so you've got these various jihadi groups that just tells you how important they are to the fabric of Pakistan. I think you've pointed out, and rightfully so, that like any conflict, it's complicated. It's not always a black and white affair. And listening to you speak, and one, by the way, congratulations on the second edition of your book on Kashmir. You've also made it quite clear that the average Kashmiri, would be a Muslim, Hindu, whatever, is the person who suffers, which is, which is usually the case in most warfare, yes. which leads to my next question, Farhana. Another part of your research program has been looking at women and terrorism. I mean, you've written about it extensively. This is a very broad question, and so feel free to answer as broadly as you as you want. What has your research found about the either the role of women and or the suffering of women? And you can include children there if you would like. When you talk about conflicts like Kashmir or any other conflict where the average person gets caught between competing sides? No, thank you for asking me that. I want to go back. I mean, this goes way back when I was a young counterterrorism analyst in the U.S. government, and I was the first American Muslim woman in the counterterrorism center. So at that point in my life, no one was focused on female terrorists. It was too new because most of the people who were joining, whether it was Al-Qaeda or any of these other groups in Somalia, uh, they were male-dominated groups, and they still are, and I argue they still will be, and yet women were slowly beginning to join. Um, And when in those days, when I was looking at this work, and I was actually writing intelligence assessments for U.S. presidents, in fact, one of my assessments became declassified, and it was called From Rocking the Cradle to Rocking the World, Why Muslim Women Kill. It was a very sassy title because you know, I had to <laughs> capture the attention of, you know, the State Department and so forth. But it was a very dark subject. And I myself, being a spiritual American Muslim woman, I wanted to understand this phenomenon. And I began to see that in those days, the greatest support women offered was spiritual. And so it was, um, they were logistics, um, you know, or facilitators, communication nodes. They were still in the background. And yet, over time, by the time you 
were looking at even some cases in Chechnya. By the time I left the agency and I was a policy analyst, the Rand Corporation, I mean, then you, I began to see women strapping on the bomb in Iraq. And I published the first op-ed in November 2005, and I predicted you would have more than 50 suicide bombers in Iraq. And that's when I, uh, so as media began to ask me what made me feel this way. And I looked at, and I tried to try to answer this question. And I, you know, I was giving talks in government circles and wherever, and I began to realize that this was such a, a complex topic that I had to break it down. And so finally, when I wrote my book, Invisible Martyrs, which came out in 2018, I created a three C's framework. And this has helped me, but it also helps military officers that I train today, which is context, culture, and capability. That if you truly want to understand the roots of radicalization, because I do believe we need to come back to the psychology of violence, you need to understand one's cultural background. Like, is there a culture in which um, that uh, a man and woman belong to that actually subscribes to violence? And, you know, do certain cultures lend themselves to violence, for example. And then there's what you hear counterterrorism experts talk about all the time, which is a push and pull factors. And that is my second C, which is context. Mm -hmm. Context comes from, it could be your environment, but it's even more broader than that. And then capability, because the reality is, as you know, Phil, uh, many people who live in conflict, most of them don't turn to violence. It's actually a minority. And of that minority, I come back to capability. You know, some people may be willing, but they're not actually capable. Um, And then there are those that are capable. And so you have to go deeper and ask the question, why? And then I come back to looking at individual um, cases. And what I have found is you cannot make blanket statements. There is no aha moment. Uh, there is no real, you know, there might be trigger events, but many people who do join radical groups, even in the conflict in Kashmir, who become suicide bombers or militants, it is over time. You have been exposed to um Either you violence has been committed against you. You've been what I call, you know, there's two strands: the victims and the victimizers. Um, I feel that many who have joined radical groups have been victimized to some extent, or they feel the sense of victimization. And for coming back to women, uh, altruism plays a pivotal role. Um, far beyond men, I really believe that women I have interviewed truly believe that there is a greater cause that's greater than themselves. And they see this as protecting not only the children, the future generations of children, um, but also bringing attention to a cause and giving their life meaning here and in the afterlife. Thank you for mentioning the whole aha moment. That's one thing I certainly have been pushing about back against for the past 20 years when it comes to radicalization. I find there's so many overly simplistic models, and especially with policymakers, and people who don't have any real background in terrorism, they, they, they have, they, you know, it's all about marginalization or it's all about poverty or it's all about mental illness. And your research has found like, like with radicalization, in general, it's the same thing with women. But I want to pursue this point a little bit, Farhana, because for many, it would, it would strike them as counterintuitive that women would want to join groups which are, let's face it, largely misogynistic. The, the, most jihadi groups are not pro-women. Did your research find anything in, in the sense that what the groups felt about the use of women? Because we've had groups like Boko Haram yes. who, who coerce young girls to become a, you can't you can't you can't call them actors. They're they're coerced and they're being forced to do so. Yet you have the Black Widows in Chechnya who seem to be 
willing participants. And of course, you have the female uh, Tamil tigers in Sri Lanka. Did your research come up with that? How do women get beyond this notion that that the very groups that they're joining are clearly not feminist groups and they clearly have antediluvian views of women sometimes and how they sort of square that circle? Yeah, um, that's a great question and one that needs to be asked more often. Um, So women have, in my, you know, just according to the you know, the research that I have done and those that I've spoken to, they still feel that they're gaining something. There's still a a purpose that is being fulfilled by joining. And they don't necessarily look at this in gender with a gendered lens because what you're talking about, and actually I teach this at um, George Washington University, I teach a course on gender, conflict, and security, and I talk about all wars being gendered wars. Well, terrorism is also gendered. And you rightly said that many of these male groups are highly patriarchal. In fact, I call it a hyper masculinity. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, there's an assumption in your question. And the assumption is that women are joining so that they can gain equal footing with men. And I think that we need to look beyond that assumption and realize that these women are not joining for the sake of equality. They're joining because they support their men. They're joining because they have also, they may have lost a male member in their family. And Mm -hmm. so there's some of the same motivations and drivers of violence for men also apply to women. I think what we have a tendency to do in the West and elsewhere is to create these two camps, um, gender camps, that men have their reasons and women do. But something I've said, which I stand by today, is that terrorism is personal. And for mm-hmm. decades, there are those people who said that terrorism is is to enact, a, you know, affect political change. And so it's very the politics of terrorism. But it's also deeply personal. And so for women, um, they're not a, they're not choosing violence to go against men. They're choosing violence to stand by their men. Uh, and that's why I have very rarely do you see a female terrorist actor who is alone. She is there's either a husband and wife hit team as we saw in America, San Bernardino, Tashveen Malik, mm-hmm. and her, you know, or and her husband, or even if a woman acts alone, and we've seen we you know in the West we call this the lone wolf terrorism, which mm. I refute that. I think that's a myth. These women, you have and a, me both. <laughs> yeah, so there's a male handler, there's a facilitator, or perhaps you know when you see the young teenage girls and Shamima Begum has been in the news lately, you know, because she wants to now she's coming back for UK citizenship. I mean, you look at that girl when she was a teenager and look. Look at that, those stories and girls like her. They were going to ISIS territory because they were looking for love and belonging and for a husband and for family. So again, the male figure is prominent here. And I think that we need to dilute this concept of that, you know, that women are doing this to gain an equal footing. Now, certainly women gain greater respect. And women are dignified. And in some groups, women have are honorific titles. In some of the Palestinian groups, when a woman detonates, you know, streets are named after her. There are mm-hmm. martyrdom parties and so forth. Um, and in, in other conflicts as well, women are are considered heroines for doing this. But there's also, um, so these, are, again, we're talking about women who volunteer. But then there's an entire group of women who are coerced, and that's a completely different story. I want to speak to something else, Phil, which often gets um, dismissed, and I hope you don't mind, and it's ignorance. Please. Ignorance of Islam. So when you ask about my research, this is something we don't often talk about, that, um, you know, especially for converts who come into radicalization. I mean, the famous case, and I went down to Denver, Colorado, and I was looking into Shannon Conley, and and Shannon Conley, and, you know, just a what you might call a simple 
average American, um, you know, family and gets radicalized online. And then 19 years old, when she boarded a plane in 2015 and she was on her way to, um, uh, you know, Germany, not Germany, but Turkey, her flight got intercepted. So thank goodness, because her father reported her. But in that same place, there were three, there were three East African girls. And I was in the East African community, you know, speaking to that entire community. And, and so you had on the one case, you have this girl who was ignorant of Islam because she was a convert. But then you have these three East African girls who were raised in a very strong Muslim community. And I even went to their mosque, met their imam. And yet they were also radicalized because they were marginalized in some sense by the community. And so when you look at these two cases, which I think are extreme and from the same city of you know, Denver, Colorado, I come back to faith that, and because I remember the community and the interviews, you know, that I was conducting with people, they're like, well, we did, we're not teaching the faith. We're not teaching the principles of peace and coexistence and mercy and love in Islam. And so again, two very different cases, but speak to ignorance. And Shannon Conley, when she was in the courtroom, she said that to Judge Moore, she was crying. And this girl was weeping. And she said, I'm sorry, I didn't understand true Islam. I thought Islam meant that I had to go there and help the poor people and the weak. Yes, of course, but not in the way that you intended to. You've raised this issue about it being very personal, and I, I, I thank you for doing that. Like you said, you've got one city, two cases where circumstances would be somewhat similar, perhaps in terms of socioeconomic status or simply the general environs of that particular, you know, so Western American city. And again, I, the research that I have done and the work I did when I worked for the security service was that, that it was very, very personal and that you cannot, as you said, nail it down to one or two particular factors. And I'm also glad you raised the whole thing about faith. I mean, I mean, I'm not a Muslim, and yet I, I fight back constantly against this notion by those. And they're, they're, they're sort of trolls and everything online that will push back against me and say, well, you're missing the point. Islam is about violence, and it is about terrorism. You don't you don't get it kind of thing, I mean, which, to which I retort, yes, there are elements that people will misinterpret or misuse to justify the use of violence, but that's, that, that is, that's, not, that's no, no more Islam than Christian extremists who use Christian scripture to justify the use of violence or Jewish settlers in the West Bank, et cetera, et cetera. So we, we, we are kindred spirits in a way, in the yes. sense that yes. we, we both work for security services. I spent a little longer than you. I spent 32 years in the business. Wow. When you left the agency and uh, then now you're in academia, you're at George Washington University in, in the United States. What was that transition like? And how would you describe in your country the relationship between the academic world and the security intelligence world? Does it, does it work fairly well? Does it work abysmally? What, what can be done to make it better? Because I, I, I know how it works here in Canada. And maybe you can walk me through in your country, because I know an awful lot of American academics. I've had several on my podcasts already who study terrorism, uh, few of whom, to the best of my knowledge, are like you in the sense that they actually spent time within the security intelligence field. So you can just maybe just talk about your experience with the agency, your decision to leave, and then how you have found reflecting on that now that you're in academe when it comes to the uh, security intelligence world, because it, it, it's it's not rocket science to know that a lot of people in academe can't stand the security intelligence world. They don't see it as 
uh, either a legitimate field or they have criticism of it or et cetera, et cetera. So maybe just share some thoughts that you have for HANA on these questions of academe and, and the security intelligence organizations. Sure. Well, thank you. It, it certainly is deeply personal and I'm happy to talk about it. It's something I, I rarely talk about openly. So I, uh, I think it's taken me many years for me to reach this point where I can speak uh, a little more openly and, and also honestly so I can share my story with others. So I probably am an, an anomaly because I've had a very different experience than most. And I'm not just saying this because I'm an American Muslim. I'm saying this because I've been blessed and been grateful in so many in this path that I walk on. Um, so many years when I was in the agency, I was only 24 years old and that was before and after 9-11. So it was a very long time ago. But even in those days, there was a very there was a strong relationship and a strong respect for the academic community and for journalists. I mean, it was back in those days that I first met Peter Bergen, who's now on CNN, who now I, mm -hmm. I know well. It was in those days that I actually first met Dr. Bruce Hoffman, who is now this seminal uh, terrorism expert. And it was Dr. Hoffman who changed my life because I had been in the agency five years in. I was focused on Al-Qaeda. That was the threat and trying to capture bin Laden. And this man said to me, Farhana, have you ever thought of leaving? He opened the door for me. And it's a story that I, I really don't tell very often, but I couldn't imagine leaving. I didn't know any other world. But I realize now that I'm a researcher and, and I, I travel freely throughout the Muslim world. I realize now that what I was trying to do then is what I'm trying to do now, which is learn, which is to gain knowledge and to seek knowledge. Um, and how do you learn? You go to the source. And of course, the methodology and the and of course, the methods are very different. And I'm not going to get into the, you know, the methods uh, of the agency and how the intelligence. Because you can't do that. You can just, you just <laughs> a lot of trouble. <laughs> uh, well, not only that, but it's just, it's just that I think that this is a better way, quite frankly. Um, when I left the agency and I was able to travel and actually talk to people, I realized there's more to the world than police forces and security agents and you know government leaders and all those people that I was meeting before, which were, they play an important role. But what about the common person? What about the person on the street? What about the taxi driver? And then I went to the conflict in Kashmir and I thought, what about that poor village woman whose husband has been taken away from her? Or what about the woman who lost her son in the 90s and spent 20 years looking for him? And I talk about Mowgli in my book. I mean, what about those people who are just your ordinary citizens or ordinary people trying to live their lives. And I wanted to talk to those people. And I wanted to get to know the civil society actors. I mean, who are the people who are not in government? Who are the, what we call the non-state actors who have a powerful voice, who are legitimate, who can really affect change? And those people uh, have been given me more light and more knowledge than I have ever gained in the intel world. And that's my only slight criticism to the intelligence community, though I still have friends there and, you know, and, and I respect the work that they do. But I find greater depth as a researcher being on the outside. And I'm also still with the one foot in. So the State Department, for example, continues, sometimes invites me and I give lectures and I still teach part-time for the U.S. military. Um, I've been doing that for over a decade now and I enjoy engaging U.S. military officers. And in fact, even in Canada, I've been to your country and, and trained your CSIS um, as a lecturer once. And so I enjoy meeting people at different um, organizations or countries. And 
I feel that I have an opportunity that I didn't have then. Um, but it's not an easy transition for many people. Some of my friends who left the agency, um, it was really daunting for them. They didn't know how to, they would say to me, Farhana, how did you make it in the real world? How did you, you know, normalize your life? Um, because we're always mindful of uh, the work that we have done prior. But again, the skill set and the training that I received back then as a researcher, because I am an analyst at heart and I'm a researcher um, by training. And so I carry those skills to this day. And what I can do now that I couldn't do then is now speak to, you know, whether it's 10 or hundreds of people. I enjoy not only seeking knowledge, but there's a saying that of, you know, we're knowledge seekers and knowledge givers. So I love sharing what I know and, and also learning from other people's experiences and their travels to the Muslim world. Well, it turns out we have something else in common and that we're both big fans of Bruce Hoffman. Yes. Uh, yes. Bruce was on my podcast a few months ago and I, and I, I look upon Bruce as truly one of the giants in terrorism studies yeah. in the West. He's been doing it for a very, very long time. I'm really sorry to hear that you went to my headquarters and I don't think I was there at the time. I would have loved to have actually <laughs> met you in person at, at CSIS in Ottawa. But Farhana, your story is a fascinating one. And it, it does show, I think, a few things. It shows that the, uh, the profession of intelligence analysis is one that will often provide people with some really good basic skills that can be deployed elsewhere. Secondly, there is a life after security intelligence. A a lot of people, I think, do struggle with when you have access to very, very sensitive, privileged information, and then all of a sudden the carpet is yanked out from under your feet and you wonder where you're going to go from there. You clearly have gone uh, to to academe. You've done very well for yourself. Congratulations on your books and on on the second edition coming out. Thank you. And I just want, want to thank you very much for your candor and your openness in talking to me today, not only about a very important conflict, which I do agree is underreported in Kashmir. You've also talked about the suffering uh, of the locals uh, in, 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 with great emotion. And I, I, do, I, do, I do respect that. You've given us some more insight on the roles of, of women on terrorism. And uh, you've, you've been a great guest. So, so thank you very much for appearing on the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. And um, I look forward to coming to Canada again someday. Thanks, Phil. You'll be my guest. Thank you. That was my conversation with Farhana Kazi. I, I'm curious as to what you think about some of the things she had to talk about. You can reach me on email, borealisrisky at gmail.com or on Twitter at borealisaves. You can also find me on LinkedIn and on Facebook. If you like this content and want to receive it free of charge, please go to my website, www.borealisthreatenrisk.com. Hit the subscribe button, provide me with your email address. You'll get a free daily digest with all podcasts, blogs, and other material free of charge to your inbox every morning. I'd love to hear what you think of this and other material. Please write to me. I'll talk to you again soon. Until then, stay safe.